Good morning, church. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Revelation chapter 9 as we continue our study through this amazing book of the Bible. <coughs> Last week we were in chapter 8, and in that part of the vision in chapter 8, John sees seven angels who are given seven trumpets, and as they blow them, what ensues are seven judgments, but the only, only the first four are covered in chapter 8, and those first four trumpet judgments are focused on creation, physical creation, specifically the land, the oceans, the freshwater supply that we have, and our sources of light in the sky, specifically the sun, moon, and stars. So a third of creation is affected by those first four trumpets, resulting in darkness at the end of the fourth trumpet. And that darkness at the end of chapter 8, like the silence that was deafening in the first part of that chapter, was a foreboding prelude to judgment. It was shouting to us, judgment is coming. Both the silence at the beginning of the chapter and the darkness at the end of the chapter said judgment is coming. And that further judgment was announced by an eagle who flies overhead and pronounces woes that are coming. And that set the stage for what we have here in chapter 9, the fifth and the sixth trumpet judgments. Now, let me just admit at the outset that this is some really strange stuff. There's some really odd things that are happening and things that are described here. And quite honestly, this is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to interpret. I labored hard over chapter 9 this week, and quite honestly, it's not going to get any easier. It's going to get even more stranger and more difficult as we go on. But as we read this chapter this morning together, and and as we encounter some of this strange stuff, and to be honest, some scary stuff, let us keep in mind the purpose of this book. It is to equip the church to persevere through tribulation. And as we begin this difficult task of interpreting chapter 9, let us have the humility to admit that while we may not be able to say with any degree of certainty what's actually happening here and what it represents, what we can do and what we should be able to do by the time we finish is to answer that one question. How can this vision, this, this part of the vision that we find in chapter 9, serve to equip the church to persevere through tribulation. And so let us read, beginning with, uh, I want to begin with the last verse of chapter 8, because it kind of sets the stage, but then we're, we're going to read through the entire chapter of Revelation 9. Church, this is God's word. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And the torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like 
human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions, lions' heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Let's pray. Our Father, we humbly come before you and ask that you'd speak to us this morning. We know that what we hold in our hand is your very breath. It is your word inspired by you, breathed out by you. And you tell us that all scripture is profitable. And so, Father, would you profit us this morning through your word? Would you give us not just an understanding that satisfies our curiosity? to put together some kind of end times puzzle. But God, would you use your word this morning to do what we've agreed together is the purpose of this book, to equip us, to prepare us, to build us up, to edify your church so that we might persevere, so that our faith might remain strong, in the days ahead, so that we might be what what you exhorted the churches of Asia Minor to be, that is, conquerors, overcomers, who hold fast to Jesus, who do not deny the faith, no matter how bad it gets. So, Father, we ask that you would do that through your word this morning. We ask that in faith, in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are two clear sections to chapter 9. There's the fifth trumpet in verses 1 through 12 where we see an army of locusts who are released to torment earth dwellers. And then in the remainder of the chapter, in the sixth trumpet, we see an incredibly large army of mounted troops on horseback that are led by these four angels who end up killing a third of mankind. So let's look at each of these in a little bit more detail. First of all, the fifth trumpet. So after the four trumpets of chapter 8, and after the eagle flies overhead and announces the, the greater woes that are coming, the fifth angel now blows his trumpet. And what does John see? He sees a star fallen from heaven. Now, what is this star that he sees falling from heaven, that has fallen from heaven? Well, we should note that this star is subsequently personified. Look at the remainder of verse 1. It goes on to say, and he, speaking of the star, he was given the key to the bottomless pit. Not it, but he. 
And in verse 2, he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. So the star is personified, and it's a he. Some see here a reference to Satan in that this is a fallen star. The prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 14, verse 12, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. In the King James Version, that phrase is translated Lucifer because Lucifer means morning star. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the heavens. And so some have understood this fallen star in the fifth trumpet to be Satan himself. Not that it's incredibly important, but I don't happen to think that a faithful interpretation of this passage requires that we understand this to be Satan. The fallenness of this star simply means that is the means by which it came down from heaven in order to do the job it was divinely ordained to do. That's how it got here. It fell from heaven. Besides the fact that that passage out of Isaiah chapter 14, in context, is talking about the king of Babylon, not Satan. And so I take this to be a star that's personified as a he and, and, and falls out of heaven. I understand that to be an angel. But all we can say for sure is that this star that's personified, it falls from heaven, is, is given a key. That's what we're told. It's given a key to the bottomless pit, to the shaft of the bottomless pit, and then he opens the shaft to the bottomless pit. What is this bottomless pit? Well, in Greek, this is the abyss. Literally, it just means a deep hole in the earth, a really deep hole. In the Bible and in Jewish theology, the abyss was the place where demons were held. It was the containment facility for fallen angels. In Luke chapter 8, when Jesus cast out the legion of demons from the man, they begged Jesus not to throw them into the abyss. They don't want to go there. The beast later in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation will come up out of the abyss, the bottomless pit. And then in Revelation chapter 20, Satan will be bound in the abyss for a thousand years, whatever that means. So the abyss was a metaphorical reference to a place where demons were held. And it was metaphorical. It wasn't literal because demons aren't held in a literal hole in the ground. It was a spiritual reality describing a spiritual something in the spiritual world not the physical world and so this star that falls from heaven is given the key to the entrance to this abyss and he opens the entrance to the abyss and what happens we're told in verse 2 that from the entrance to the abyss from the out of the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. So this ominous cloud of smoke rises up out of the abyss and the sky turns dark. Again, darkness serving as a foreboding prelude of coming judgment. So this is telling us that greater judgment is coming. And then in verse 3, we're told that out of the smoke come locusts on the earth. So these locusts come out. But these weren't obviously regular grasshopper-like bugs. These were locusts on steroids, if you will. Now, my study of the text, in looking at where they come from, which is the abyss, holding place of the demons, given what their mission is, that we'll see in just a moment, and the description of their appearance, my conclusion is that these are not literal locusts. Nor are they Apache attack helicopters, as a Bible commentator back in the 70s understood them to be. Instead, my study leads me to conclude that they are, in fact, demons. Now, we'll see their mission described in verses 3 through 6, and then their appearance in fantastic and grotesque detail in verses 7 through 12. So first, their mission. In verse 3, we're told that they were given power like the power 
of scorpions on the earth. Now that word power, typically when the Apostle John uses that, not just in Revelation, but in his gospel and in his letters, when he uses that word for power there, it's not dunamis, it's a different word for power, and typically it's translated authority. And we'll see it used elsewhere in Revelation in that way. So whatever this power or authority is, it is given to these locusts. It would seem strange, just maybe, maybe it's true, but it would seem strange to me that God would give authority to insects. But God can, and apparently does, give authority, restricted and limited authority, to demons. And their authority is likened to the authority and the power of scorpions. Biblically, scorpions were symbolic of demonic activity. Um, in fact, in that same passage that um, we just read from, from Luke chapter 10, where Jesus said, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. In the very next verse, Jesus says, Behold, I have, he's speaking to the disciples who've come back from preaching the gospel. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, some have interpreted that literally, which gave, gave rise to church handling, or excuse me, snake handling churches. I don't want to see church handling snakes, snake handling churches, right? But, but Jesus was referring there to serpents and scorpions figuratively, referring to demons. So the power or authority of, that the locusts are given here are the power or authority of the scorpions, which is the power or authority of the demons. In verse 4, we're told that, that they're told not to harm the grass or the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So here's another indication that these are not literal locusts because that's what literal locusts do. They eat green grass, plants, and trees. They do harm to them by eating them, but these don't. These locusts are only given permission to harm people, but only a specific group of people. Only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So this takes us back to chapter 7, two chapters ago, the 144,000, remember? They received the seal of God on their forehead, and it was a sign of of God's protection of them and God's ownership of them. The seal that God gave them on their foreheads. And remember that we said the 144,000 were Christians. They were Christ followers. They've come to faith in Christ. And so that seal was symbolic of the seal of the Holy Spirit that is given to all those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ and His finished work on the cross as their only hope for eternal life. That this now is the seal that God has given to them, symbolic of God now owns us and God will now protect us. And so the sealed are those who have come to faith in Jesus and have the hope of eternal life. And the unsealed are those who do not. They do not have a covering for their sin. They are laid bare before the throne. They do not have an advocate with the Father. And it is these unsealed who are the target of these locusts, these demons, if you will. But those who have the seal of God on their foreheads are somehow supernaturally protected from this judgment, from these demonic beasts. In verse 5, we're told that they were allowed to torment those without the seal on their foreheads for five months, but not to kill them, we're told. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. Now, I want us to understand this word torment that's here. In Greek, it's the, it's the Greek word basanizo. And it's, it's a really, it's an incredible word. It comes to us from the ancient practice, get this, the ancient practice of using a touchstone in order to test the purity of metals. So what you would do in testing the purity of metals is you would, you would rub the metal coin onto a, a, a black kind of slate touchstone, and you would rub so hard that it would leave some of the metal on the stone and leave a mark. And then they would compare the color of that mark 
to the known color of gold or silver or bronze or whatever metal it is that they were testing. And it was surprisingly accurate in that day. But the Greek word for the process of rubbing the metal coin against the touchstone was this Greek word basanizo, which is often translated into the word torment. It was torment for that metal coin to be rubbed against the touchstone so hard that part of the metal actually rubbed off on the touchstone. Imagine being that metal coin, right? It was torment. Now we know that torment can come in many different forms. It can be physical, but can't it also be emotional, psychological even, torment? We're given a clue as to the kind of torment these locusts inflict in verse 6. It says, in those days people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will not flee from them. Now I suppose that this could be a description of physical torment, but I think that it could be just as easily to be describing emotional or mental torment. Something causes these people to seek death. We're not told what. We don't don't know why they seek death, but they do. Maybe it's because it's physical torment. Maybe they're receiving some kind of physical punishment or beating to the point where they would rather die than continue being beaten. Or perhaps it, it is emotional or psychological or mental torment and it's so bad that they think the only way they can escape it is death john goes on to say they long to die but death will flee from them so even if the torment starts out as physical it ends up being emotional and mental in the end they're longing for death but it flees from them those Those who suffer from emotional or psychological suffering will likely tell you that it's like suffering a certain kind of torment. And while it doesn't always lead to suicidal thoughts, I suppose that we could say that that all suicide really is a form of mental illness, perhaps resulting in some cases from emotional or mental torment. Personally, I think that's the kind of torment that's being described here. These locusts don't attack the body of these unbelievers as much as they attack their minds. I believe this to be a description of demonic influence from a host of demons that are let loose on the earth to torment people, but not to kill them. So that's their mission. What about their appearance? And what follows in verse 7 and following is just this fantastic description of these locusts. Listen to what it says. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And the power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Some really scary pictures here. Sounds like something out of maybe like a Tolkien novel or something. Just seems fantastic. I don't think that we're meant to conclude from this that these are literal insects, at least not like any locusts that we know of in the natural world. But neither should we look for a referent in anything like present-day, modern-day helicopters. Certainly that was not in John's mind when he wrote it, nor was it in the mind of the first century reader. Clearly, this is figurative language. In those verses that we just read, four verses, the word like is used eight different times, signifying a figurative comparison. So again, I believe him to be describing here demons. They're coming up out of the abyss, which is the holding place of demons. They're given authority to torment, 
and much of their torment appears to be mental and emotional and psychological. But then we're also told that they have a king, at verse 11. They have a, as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, which means destruction. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon, which means the destroyer. This is none other than Satan himself. Satan is the king of these locusts. So there's no question in my mind that what's being described here are demons in this fifth trumpet. Now, before we unpack the why and the redemptive purpose of this judgment, I want us to look at the sixth judgment trumpet and then ask that same question. So John writes in verse 12, the first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. So just as the eagle announced at the end of chapter 8, these last three jump judgments are called woes because they are a display of God's wrath against unrepentant sinners. In the sixth ju- uh, trumpet judgment, we see an army um, that is led by four fallen angels that are released to kill a third of mankind. Now, before we dive into details, we should notice that there is a pattern here that's very similar to the pattern that we saw in the fifth trumpet with the demon locusts. First, an angel blows his trumpet, and God gives permission to, de- to demonic forces to bring judgment to the earth, to earth dwellers. Second, the demons are given instructions by God, and in both cases, they're also given restrictions or limitations. And so they're told what their mission is, but they're given boundaries to that mission. It's not unlimited. And then third, all of that is followed by a very detailed and grotesque description of both the locust and these horses. So the sixth trumpet, what we'll see is that it intensifies the fifth. In the fifth trumpet judgment, the demons are only allowed to torment the earth dwellers, but not to kill them. But now in the sixth trumpet, these demons are given permission to kill a third of mankind. So there's this intensification from the fifth trumpet judgment to the sixth. So let's briefly walk through this judgment. Verse 13, the sixth angel blows his trumpet. And John says, I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Maybe this is the voice of God that calls out. We're not told for sure, but certainly the voice is giving the, giving the divine instruction to this angel. What does he say? Verse 14, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, who are these angels? Well, first of all, note that they're bound. The fact that they are bound tells us something of their demonic character. They're angels who are bound. Secondly, the river Euphrates is often used in literature and biblical literature itself as a symbol of of enemy invasion. Again, suggesting that these are fallen angels, demons. Verse 15, the four angels who had been prepared, were told that they had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. So that's their mission. The mission of the demon locust in the fifth trumpet was to torment people, but not to kill them. The mission of these four angels in the sixth trumpet is to kill a third of mankind. Now, as awful as that sounds, we should note that it could be worse, right? A third is a lot, and a third is, a more, is more than a fourth who were killed in the fourth, by the fourth rider of the fourth, fourth horse and the fourth seal in chapter 6. But it could also be more, and it will be more in the bold judgments to come. And so while this is terrible and we should not rejoice in the death of any person made in the image of God, we shouldn't rejoice in that, but we should see that it could be worse, and it will get worse. So how do these four angels end up killing a third of mankind? We're told how in verse 16. It will be through an enormous army of mounted troops that they will lead into battle against the earth dwellers. Again, remember, every time Revelation talks about the earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth, it's talking about the unrepentant sinners, unbelievers. So they're going to lead this huge army. And John, is, John gives us this number because he's given the number of them in verse 16. What is the number? Twice 10,000 times 10,000. 
Kids, you can do that on your calculator. What is 2 times 10,000 times 10,000? Real quick math. 200 million. 200 million troops all on horseback. Quite a cavalry, right? Commentator Scott Duvall notes that the Roman army at this time numbered about 150,000 with a, an auxiliary army of about the same size. So 300,000 troops in the Roman army. And this demon army in chapter 9 is almost 700 times larger than the largest army on the face of the earth at this time. Imagine a force today 700 times larger than the largest army in the world today. Clearly this is hyperbole. The intent here is to communicate an enormous army of incalculable size and strength. Listen to how John describes the appearance of these horses in verses 17 through 19. It's incredible. This is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire, which is red, and of sapphire, which is blue, and of sulfur, which is yellow. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire, smoke, and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. I've never seen a horse like this, and I would imagine you've never either. And if you have, you probably haven't lived to tell the tale about it. So are these literal horses here? Or, like the locusts in the fifth trumpet, are we meant to interpret this more figuratively? We mentioned that some commentators back in the 70s listened to John's descriptions of the locusts and likened them to uh, military helicopters. Those same commentators hear John's descriptions of these horses and see in them a representation of modern-day tanks and rocket launchers. Again, not only would this have been absolutely foreign to both John and his first century reader, so much so that it seems far-fetched to me that that God would have intended for John to write something down that only 21st century Christians would understand 2,000 years later and not the first century audience to which it was originally intended. But beyond that, man, you would have to apply so much symbolic interpretation into these descriptions of locusts and horses in order to make them match at least somewhat accurately descriptions of helicopters and tanks that you might as well apply the same amount of symbolic interpretation and just say that they're literal locusts and horses right i think either of those interpretive approaches is flawed instead i think what we have here in the second half of chapter nine is exactly what we had in the first half of chapter nine a description of an incredibly large horde of demons who were sent first to torment and now to kill. Now, what this means in terms of what will actually happen and what we'll see, I don't know. Is it okay to say that? I, I just don't know. We, we should probably just let God's word speak for itself. The fifth angel blows his trumpet. And a demonic host of locust-like beasts are set loose. They come up out of the abyss and they torment people for five months. The sixth angel blows his trumpet and four fallen angels are released from their bonds and they they lead an incredibly large host of mounted troops against mankind and kill a third of mankind. The preterist we'll see in these descriptions a reference to the Roman imperial army of the first century leading up to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. The historicist will see this happening many centuries later in the Middle Ages. The futurist will see this happening, well, in the future, right? That happens to be where I fall. 
But what it looks like in the future, what will actually happen, I don't know. I don't know. Let's just read God's word. My best guess, and that's really all it is, is that a host of demons will be let loose on the earth, first to torment and then to kill. But the target is not believers. Believers are sealed during this time, somehow supernaturally protected from these judgments. Now, they're still suffering persecution and martyrdom, as we saw in the sealed judgments, and that will continue. But they are protected from these manifestations of God's wrath. Instead, the target of these judgments are unbelievers, those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, those who have not come to faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope to be rescued from judgment. They will be tormented by demon locusts. And a third of them will be killed by a demonic army of mounted troops. What about the other two-thirds? What about them? We're told about them in the last two verses. Verse 20 and 21, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. That's incredible. Even after an inescapable display of judgment against sin, still, these remain unrepentant. The heart, church, the heart of the unrepentant is incredibly stubborn. And incredibly hard. So much so that it would take a miracle, a miracle of regeneration to make it soft to the things of God, pliable to faith in the gospel. Because even after they see what's in store for those who remain unrepentant, still they refuse to repent. And they continue in both their idolatry and their worship of demons. Get that. They're worshiping the very ones who are intent on destroying them. That's the insanity of unbelief. The demons are killing them for their unbelief and their unrepentance. And not only do they remain obstinate in their unbelief and unrepentance, but they worship the very beings who are killing them. Incredible. Incredible. The stubbornness of unrepentance. It takes a miracle to overcome that. That is the miracle of regeneration. Now let's return to the question that we posed at the outset. How does this part of the vision that we see in Revelation chapter 9 help to equip the church to persevere through tribulation? Well, the overarching theme of this part of Revelation, of really all of Revelation, is that judgment is coming against sin. That's what, that's what we see over and over again. We see it, see it in the seal judgments. We see it in the trumpet judgments. We see it in the bold judgments. We see it in their intensification. And we see it in their ultimate pathway, which leads to the great white throne judgment, the final judgment for sin. Judgment is coming against sin. That's what's being shouted to us over and over again as we read Revelation. Judgment is coming. That's what we hear now. There, there may be judgment in the world today, but it's partial. And it's shouting to us, final judgment is coming against sin. That's the overarching theme. So how can that truth, and being reminded of that truth in this chapter, serve to equip the church to persevere through tribulation? Well, there could be a myriad of ways, but I want to point out six to them as we wrap up. First, it helps us to fight against sin. Church, when we see this incredible display of God's hatred for sin, which is what this is. We cannot help 
but grow in our own hatred of sin, which is invaluable in our fight against sin in our own lives. So it helps us fight against sin. Secondly, this serves to remind us that this world is not our home. We sang about that. This world is not our home. This world and everything in it is irreparably stained with sin. It is a fallen world filled with fallen people. It is a broken world filled with broken people. We like to pretty it up and dress it up with all kinds of glitter and makeup and nice clothes. But it is a broken and fallen world. But God is making all things new. Church, don't be so in love with this world that you forget that you're made for another one. This is not our home. Our home awaits us and it is immeasurably better. Thirdly, this truth that judgment is coming against sin also reminds us to pray to God to bring justice on the earth. Remember that these judgments are coming, at least in part, as a result of the prayers of the saints that we talked about in chapter 8. So church, keep praying for God to bring justice, to to right all of the wrongs in the world, to stop evil and to put an end to rebellion against Him. These prayers, as we learned last week, will one day be offered up as a fragrant offering to God. And when they reach the nostrils of our God, He will pour out these judgments on the earth and on sin. Fourth, The way that we see this truth, judgment is coming against sin, the way that we see this truth meted out in this chapter, we must admit that God is supremely sovereign over Satan and his demons. Bible scholars like to point out in both this chapter and the previous one what's known as the divine passive. The divine passive is a verb form where the subject of the verb is not known, but from the context, is, it is understood to be God. We're not explicitly told who's doing the acting, but from the context, we know that it's God who's doing the acting. Let me give you some examples from verse 1. When the star that's fallen from heaven was given the key to the bottomless pit, that's a divine passive, was given the key. Who gave that star the key? It was God. God gave that star the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. In verse 3, the locusts were given power. That's another divine power, uh, divine passive. They were given power like the power of scorpions. We should understand that to be God being the one who gave the locusts that power. In verse 4, the locusts were told not to harm the grass or the trees or the, the green plants. Who told them? God. In verse 6, they were allowed to torment the people for five months. Who allowed them? It was God, over and over again. We see this throughout this chapter. God, we're confronted with the fact that, that although these are demons, they, and they torment mankind, and then they kill a third of mankind, it is God himself who is sovereign over them. He calls them forth. He he releases them from the abyss. He he releases the bonds of the angels, the fallen angels, so that they might wreak havoc on the earth. But he also sets their limit. He sets a boundary around them and restricts them to only go as far as he intends. The locusts are allowed to torment, but not to kill. They're allowed to torment for Five months and no longer. The four angels, the four fallen angels in the second half were released to kill. Get that, released to kill, but released to kill a third of mankind and no more. And so we're confronted with a God who even ordains this manifestation of satanic and demonic activity in this case. In fact, look, look at verse, nine, verse 15 of chapter 9. John writes, so the four angels who had been prepared, that's another divine passive, who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. He prepared these fallen angels for this task at this very moment, we're told. 
We don't have time to wrestle with the problem of evil this morning. But that's where this leads. How could a good and holy God allow evil to exist? We know it goes beyond that, right? How could a good and holy God ordain evil? And beyond that, how can he do so without being stained by the very evil that he ordains? That's a good question to be answered on another day. But suffice it to say, church, that God's sovereignty is not limited by the power of Satan and his demons. It's not limited in any way. In fact, Satan and his demons are created beings. It's God who creates them. And they do their evil deeds under the sovereignty of God. And he will not allow them to go any further than he intends in order to accomplish his sovereign and divine purposes. Now the how and the why of uh, of that can be wrestled with at another time. But church, don't ever be lulled into thinking. Let us never be lulled into thinking that the power of God and the power of Satan are like the dark side of the force and the light side of the force, or the yin and the yang of Eastern religions, or, or that the power of good is, is balanced by the power of evil. No! God's sovereignty is not limited in any way by evil. In fact, He is sovereign over it, and He will not allow it to go any further than He intends to accomplish His purposes, and no further than that. Two more ways that this truth, judgment is coming against sin, can edify the church. Fifth, it should should be a reminder to us that we have an advocate with the Father. We, We have an advocate before the throne. Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. The Lamb who's opening the seals and, and, and inaugurating all of these events. We have him as an advocate. You see, you know where this is headed. This is headed to the great white throne. This is headed to the final judgment for sin. Where all mankind will come and give an answer for sin. And church, we've come, who've come to faith in Jesus Christ, we have an advocate. We have a covering. Our sin has been paid for. The the price has been been met, has been satisfied through Jesus' shed blood on the cross and resurrection from the grave for all those who have placed their faith in Christ alone. We have a rescuer, a redeemer, an advocate, Jesus the Lamb. And our, our redemption, our salvation in that sense is not based on our own merit, is not based on our own works or our own righteousness, but based on the finished work of Christ on the cross in our place and His righteousness credited to our account by faith. We have an advocate before the throne. Praise God. And then finally, this truth should be an exhortation to the unrepentant among us, to repent and believe. Those limitations that we see in the forces of the demons here in chapter 9 should be a reminder to us that there was still opportunity to repent. The locusts were allowed to torment, but not to kill. And then they were only allowed to torment for five months. And the fallen angels led their army to kill just a third of mankind. They weren't given permission to kill more than that. Why not kill all the unrepentant? Well, presumably because there was still time to repent. And the closing statement in verse 21, that the rest still did not repent, infers at least that perhaps there was an opportunity to repent. Church, every time we see tribulation in the world today, whether it's a pandemic that kills hundreds of thousands, or whether it's a geopolitical crisis like we see in the country of Afghanistan today causing untold suffering every time we see tribulation and suffering in the world it should be a reminder to us a an ominous reminder to us that we all deserve judgment because of our sin and all this tribulation is pointing to a greater tribulation to come 
that ultimately will culminate in the final judgment. And everyone who faces that judgment without Jesus will spend eternity in the lake of fire, forever separated from a God who made you and loved you. And so friend, if that's you, let me just encourage you. Today is the day of repentance. Today is. There is time today. There may not be time tomorrow, but there's time today. So come to Jesus in faith. Turn from your sin and trust in his finished work on Calvary as your only hope. Let's pray. Our God and King, thank you so much for this book. One day I'm going to I'm going to ask you why you made it so hard to understand in places. While we really can't say with any degree of certainty what exactly all this represents in the world, what the referent is, whether it's spiritual or physical or literal or whatever it is, we can know the impact it made on your bride in the first century. And we too can be impacted by it in that way. So God, I pray that you would take the words of this text and cause it to bear spiritual fruit in this expression of the bride. God, that we might be prepared for whatever might come. That our faith might be strong and secure, unwavering, no matter the tribulation we face, and that we might be equipped to persevere no matter how hard the tribulation gets. And may we do that, Father, not for our vain glory, but for your glory. Father, we pray for those among us who don't know your Son in a saving way. God, we're reminded the miracle of regeneration that you've wrought in our hearts where you replace that hard heart of stone and stubbornness to the things of God and replaced it with a soft heart of flesh that is soft to the things of God. We pray that for our friend, our person that may be among us in this room, in our home, in our neighborhood, in our places of work, who doesn't know you in this way. God, would you replace their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh and bring them to faith in Jesus as their only hope. Would you bring them from death to life and make them to be one of your worshipers and then help them to grow and be equipped through passages like this to persevere no matter how hard it gets. We pray this in faith, Father, and we pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.